Good morning to each one of you. It's good to be with you, and I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Now, one author has written, it was the encouragement of the word that sustained young William Carey during his first months as a pioneer missionary in India. William Carey, of course, went to India several centuries ago as a missionary. Everything seemed to conspire against him. No one was responding to his message. His co-worker, John Thomas, was in constant danger of being arrested in Calcutta due to his indebtedness, and he was dragging William down with him. The Carey family was ill-housed and nearly destitute. Two of the four children suffered from severe dysentery. Worst of all, his own wife, Dorothy, was hostile and unhappy. But this is what Carey wrote. These are burdens and afflictions to me. But I bless God that I do not faint. And when my soul drinks her fill at the word of God, I forget all. Whoever you are this morning, and whatever your circumstances, please come and drink your fill at the word of God. This is what you need above all else. Whatever has transpired this past week, whatever is running like 90 through your mind, Wherever your heart, whatever direction it is going in, whatever the cares and the concerns and the afflictions and the sorrows, please come and may your soul drink her fill at the word of God. To that end, we are going to consider a most uplifting, most encouraging, most most comforting passage of scripture this morning. It is, of course, the restoration of Lazarus. And so I invite you to follow along as I begin reading in the first verse of John 11. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. 
The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here... My brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him. And let him go. Oh, drink your fill this morning, folks. It doesn't get any better than that. 
of the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are five simple scenes in this, in this tremendous story, this, this tremendous account of the restoration to life of Lazarus. Five scenes as it unfolds before us. And what I would like to do this morning is, is explain briefly each scene and take one statement from each and meditate upon it and consider what it, what it shows us, what it tells us about the glory of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first scene is found in the first six verses. Christ hears that Lazarus is sick. Lazarus is a transliteration of the Hebrew name Eleazar. Eleazar. Eleazar is a compound name. It's two words pushed together. El means strength. It's a reference to God. Azar in Hebrew means to help. And so what is Eleazar? What does Lazarus mean? God has helped. It's prophetic, isn't it? What a prophetic name. That this man who finds himself four days in the tomb is raised to life, restored to life by the Lord Jesus Christ. How does it happen? Well, Christ is away on the other side of the Jordan. Lazarus is with his sisters, Mary and Martha, in the city of Bethany, just a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. Lazarus falls sick. It is obvious, obviously serious. And so Mary and Martha, they send word to Christ. And basically their word is this, Lazarus, whom you love, is sick. Come quickly. What is their hope? What is their expectation? Well, nothing less than that the man who, who, who raised the lame man beside the pool of Bethesda, the one who had healed the blind man, the one who had performed all of these miracles, restoring sight, restoring hearing, casting out demons, that this one would come and restore their brother's health. And we might expect, we might expect from what John tells us here that the Lord Jesus would go immediately to do just that, don't we? The sisters, verse 3, they sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And so we're immediately reminded of Christ's love for Lazarus. It's repeated in verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so what do we expect he's going to do? He's going to make haste. He's going to head straight to Bethany. Nothing's going to stop him. Nothing will impede him. Nothing will slow him down. His love for them will compel him to get to Bethany to heal Lazarus. Is that what happens? Verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Verse 6, so what did he do? So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Well, that's absurd, isn't it? That's what kind of an expression? What kind of an expression of love is that? I mean, that's the grammar there. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. How does he express this love? Verse six. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed exactly where he was two days longer. 
Why? That's what I want to know. And I'm guessing that's what you want to know this morning. Why? What's going on here? Well, the answer is found in the statement that I want us to focus in on in verse 4. When Jesus heard it, when he heard of Lazarus' illness, sickness, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Yes, he's going to die, but the death will not be permanent. Here's what it will lead to. It is for the glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I love Lazarus. I love Martha. And I love Mary. Here's what I'm going to do for them. I'm going to allow Lazarus to die. Purposefully. And then I'm going to go to Bethany. And I'm going to raise that man from the dead. And I am going to do so that they might behold the glory. Of the Son of God. That's marvelous. What glory is he talking about? Undoubtedly the glory of his power. This is the seventh of seven signs recorded in John's Gospel account. He gives us seven. And so we see that Christ turns water into wine way back in chapter 2. Then Christ heals the nobleman's son and then Christ heals the lame man. Christ feeds the multitude. Christ walks on water. Christ heals the blind man. This is building. This is building. The seventh sign, he raises a man from the dead to prove, to demonstrate, to show beyond any shadow of a doubt his power. And by revealing his power, declaring his glory. And by declaring his glory, manifesting his deity. I find that encouraging. That my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is all powerful. It's recorded in Mark chapter 4, Mark 5, somewhere around there. You can figure it out later. Many of you will know the story, be familiar with it. The Lord Jesus disembarks from a boat in the land of the Gadarenes. And there in that land, for some time, there has been a man running around naked, living among the tombs, gashing himself with stones. And the people have tried to bind him with cords and ropes to prevent this self-mutilation. And Mark tells us that this man is possessed with a demon, legion. But when legion sees the Lord Jesus Christ disembark from the boat, he is compelled to do what? To run to Christ, to prostrate himself before him, and to declare what business do we have with each other? Jesus, Son of God Most High. Oh, what's the Old Testament context, folks? God Most High. Does it ring a bell? It's Genesis chapter 14. And back in Genesis chapter 14, what do we read about? We read about these four kings from the east, is it, that invade the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. They defeat the five kings of of the land and they take away all of their possessions. They take away these people. They take away Lot, Abraham's nephew. They take all these things captive. Abraham gets together his 318 servants, a rather motley crew, and off they go chasing after these invading armies. Abraham is victorious. As he returns to the land, someone goes out to meet him from the city of Salem. It is Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is a priest of God Most High. In the Hebrew, El, E-L, first word, second word, Elion. 
What does El mean? Strength. Power. That's what El means in Hebrew. Strength. Power. What does Elion mean? It magnifies that strength. Therefore, El Elion is the strongest of the strong. He is the mightiest of the mighty. He is God most high. Why? Moses tells us in Genesis 14. It is because he is the possessor of heaven and earth. God most high. And when Legion grovels at the feet of the Lord Jesus and cries, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of God most high? He knew in whose presence he groveled. He knew in whose presence he found himself. The very possessor of heaven and of earth. The strongest of the strong. The mightiest of the mighty. And how this is confirmed in John 11. When the Lord Jesus brings to a head his public ministry, it's drawing to a close. He is, he is, it, it, the Passover is approaching. His crucifixion is but days, weeks away. It is, it is fully in view. And as he brings his public ministry to a close, having performed all those miracles, he now performs a miracle of all miracles by raising a man from the dead, thereby confirming his power, thereby confirming his identity, thereby revealing the glory of the Son of God. That's the first scene. The second scene begins in verse 7 and goes right through to verse 16. Christ responds to his disciples' concern. In verse 7, what does he say to the disciples? Let's go. Let us go to Judea again. They've just left Judea. Why have they just left Judea? Because there the Lord Jesus has healed a blind man and people have been overwhelming in their response and the Lord Jesus just wants a little break from all the excitement. They're out to lynch him. They're out to stone him. They're out to kill him. And so the Lord Jesus slips away across the river Jordan. Now he says to his disciples' consternation, Let's go back again. Let's go back to Judea. And what's their response? Verse 8, Rabbi, uh, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? What's up with that? And Christ gives his response by way of an allegory, I suppose. Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world doesn't mean too much to us, but it would have meant a whole lot in a day and age in which there was no electricity, no no lights. Uh, The light you had was the light you enjoyed during the day while the sun was in the sky, 12 hours of the day. If you wanted to work, if you wanted to go anywhere, you did it during the day. And as long as you did it during the day, you could see there was no problem. But to do it at night would be to invite all sorts of problems. And the Lord Jesus is saying, look, my ministry is like that. My earthly ministry is like that. There are 12 hours in the day. There has been a time appointed for me. There is an hour coming. This isn't something that's going to jump out and surprise me and take me unaware. This is why I have come into the world to die 12 hours in the day. And as long as I walk in the day, nothing can alter this plan. Nothing can alter my intent to die at Calvary's cross. No one can prolong it. No one can shorten it. It is in God's hands. Let's go. We're heading back to Judea. And then word comes, verse 11. 
Our friend Lazarus, Christ says to his disciples, has fallen asleep. He's speaking figuratively. The disciples don't get it at first. What does Christ say, verse 14, plainly? Lazarus has died. And I'm glad. That's odd. That is as odd as what we saw in the first scene, that Christ loves Martha and Mary and Lazarus, so he waits two days so that Lazarus might die. Now the Lord Jesus says something similar to his disciples. Lazarus has died. And guess what? For your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. I'm glad I wasn't there to prevent it. I'm glad I wasn't there to heal him so that you may believe. You are about to see something of, of, of eternal consequence. You are about to see a revelation of the Son of God, which will make all other revelations pale in comparison Let us go to him. So Thomas, begrudgingly, Thomas is often called a man of little faith, somewhat of a coward, but we see something of his boldness here. He says to his fellow disciples, verse 16, let us also go, that we may die with him. A statement I want us to focus on for a few moments. It's found in verse 9. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble. I take great encouragement from that this morning. Why? Because it reminds me that the Lord Jesus, my God and Savior, is in absolute control. He has appointed the hours that are in my day. He has appointed everything that befalls me in life. He is in control of Lazarus' death. He is in control of his own death. And he is in control of everything that befalls me in life and in death. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. All that he pleases. Oh, how how that encourages me. I am uplifted and comforted by the fact that Christ is in control. Job 14.5 Man's days are determined and the number of his months is with you, God, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. I will not live one moment longer than what God has appointed for me. I will not live one moment less than what God has appointed for me. I echo the words of John Wesley. My life is immortal until my work on earth is done. My life is immortal until my work on earth is done. Do you believe that, friend? Do you believe that, Christian? That you stand in the palm of God's hand. The the number of the hairs upon your head known to him alone. And the days appointed for your sojourn on this earth, known to him alone. How comforting. How liberating. That there are 12 hours in the day. And if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble. The third scene begins in verse 17. Goes right through to verse 27. Christ speaks with Martha. Christ makes the journey to Bethany, or at least on the outskirts of Bethany. He doesn't enter into the town. 
The, the word gets to Martha quickly. The Jews see him coming. They hear that the Lord Jesus and the disciples are on their way. Someone sends word to Martha and Mary. Mary stays in the house. Martha goes out to meet the Lord Jesus. Look at what she cries in verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That is not, she is not complaining. She is not bickering. She is, she's, she's not making an accusation there. She is making a declaration of faith. It comes out in verse 22. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. In verse 23, the Lord Jesus tells her what he is about to ask of God. Your brother will rise again. She already knows that, verse 24. She's already thinking in terms of the last day. She's already thinking in terms of the final resurrection. So she says there, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Verse 25, the Lord Jesus gently corrects her. He doesn't have that final resurrection in view. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's a spiritual resurrection. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And what's her reply? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Yes, Martha has this hope. Martha has this certainty that there is a day appointed when there will be a resurrection. And she has this full confidence that in that day, Lazarus will be raised from the dead. The Lord Jesus is not denying that. The Lord Jesus actually confirms it. But what he wants Martha to understand is this. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Yes, your hope is in a general resurrection. But even more importantly, Martha, your hope should be in me. Why? Because life flows from me. The resurrection flows from me. From me, I am the source of spiritual life. He who believes in me shall never die. In other words, those who put their faith and trust in me, God will forgive them their sins and they will be forgiven for all eternity. And there is now no condemnation for those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. That life flows from me and me alone. And yes, there will be a future resurrection and that life flows from me too. Because I am about to go to the cross. And there at the cross I will bear sinners' sin and condemnation. And three days later I will rise again. And you see, those who believe in me, though they die physically, they will rise again and they will do so by virtue of their oneness with me. Because you see, all life flows from me. The resurrection life flows from me. And this is what I want you to grasp, Martha. I want your hope to be squarely on me, my person, and the work that I am about to accomplish at Calvary's cross. A statement that is wonderful. And you know which one I'm going to gravitate to. Is indeed that statement in verse 25 where Christ states, I am the resurrection And the lie. There is an occasion when the Sadducees, a group of religious leaders who did not believe in the resurrection, they approached Christ and they wanted to show how silly this notion of a future resurrection was. 
And so they came up with this scenario, which I suppose was somewhat plausible, and they thought it would cinch their argument. And so they come to Christ, and they can just picture the bunch of them snickering to themselves. Well, no one's going to be able to answer this one and get themselves out of this quagmire. Okay, you see, there's, a, there's this husband and wife. They're married. But here's the thing. The husband dies. Do you remember this one? The husband dies, passes away. Well, according to the law, according to Moses, and you uphold Moses' teaching, well, according to Moses, because that husband has died, his brother has a responsibility to marry that widow and to raise up children in his brother's name. And so, true to the law, true to Moses, his brother fulfills his duty, marries that woman, but days, months, years later, what happens? He dies. But there's a third brother. And so he assumes the responsibility, he takes up the calling, he marries that woman with the intent of fulfilling what Moses commanded in, ra- in terms of raising up a seed in the memory of his, of his first brother. But he dies before that can be done. And you see, this goes on, Lord, Master, Rabbi, this goes on until seven brothers have married this same woman. Now, tell us. I mean, they're, they're tripping over each other, gasping to try to get out the punchline. Tell us, in the resurrection, right, whose wife will she be? Who will she belong to of those seven? Don't, no need to answer. We've shown just how silly this notion of a resurrection is. And the Lord Jesus' answer is actually twofold. It begins by telling them, you know absolutely nothing about the resurrection. Because in the resurrection life, men and women are not given as they are here on earth, but they will be like the angels. There won't be this marriage state, but even more, more importantly is this. You've made an appeal to Moses. Well, let me make an appeal to Moses. And let me take you all the way back to Exodus chapter 3. Seeing as you only believe in the books of Moses, you don't accept the rest of Scripture, let's go right back to the Pentateuch. And let's go right back to Exodus chapter 3, and let's go back to Moses and hear from Moses. And as Moses stands before that burning bush and God speaks to him, what does God say to Moses? I am the God of Abraham. Do you remember that? I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. Oh, you poor, demented soul. He did not say, I was the God of Abraham. He did not say, I was the God of Isaac. He did not say, I was the God of Jacob. These men have been dead for centuries, and yet God can declare to Moses, I am Abraham's God. I am Isaac's God. I am Jacob's God. Why can he say that? Christ tells us, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. They're still alive. There is life after death. There is a life that flows from Christ, that flows from his finished work at Calvary's cross. And this is what he wants Martha to understand. And I pray, God, this is what we grasp here this morning. I grasp, I pray that we, we enjoy this life. That we enjoy this life now, spiritual life. That having been dead in our sin, we are now one with Christ and we, and we bask in this abundant life. And that we have this hope, we have this certainty. That though our course here on earth may, may run out. And though our days here on earth may pass away. We have this confident expectation. We have this unwavering hope that there will be a day of resurrection 
There will be a day when Christ will raise us from the dead, again unite our bodies to our souls, and we will be perfected in the likeness of Christ. And we will enjoy he who is life for all eternity. The fourth scene, very much connected to the third. Christ has just spoken to Martha. Now, of course, he speaks to Mary. Begins in verse 28. All the way through to verse 37. Martha's had her little conversation with the Lord Jesus. And so Martha returns to Mary. She goes to her in private. Verse 28. The teacher is here and is calling for you. So Mary goes quickly. I don't know why she delayed in the beginning. Mary's often the one who's at the feet of the Lord Jesus. But for some reason, there's a delay. There's some hesitation. But once Martha returns, pointing out to her that Christ wants her, he is calling to her, she goes. And what does she say? She says exactly the same thing in verse 32 that Martha had said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What is Christ's response? Verse 33, he sees her weeping. And he sees the Jews who had come with her weeping. And look at the last phrase in verse 33. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. There's empathy there, folks. Empathy. Deep empathy. Deep sympathy. And so he asks in verse 34, where have you laid him? Come and see. And the entire experience is somewhat overwhelming for Christ himself as he enters into this suffering caused by sin and this death of a loved one. And as he witnesses the grief on the part of Martha and Mary and these other Jews and it grips him. And in verse 35, we have this effulgence, if you like, of his humanity. Jesus wept. Jews aren't so convinced. Well, some are. Verse 36. See how he loved him. But others, a little cynical. Verse 37. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? A phrase we need to spend some time thinking about this morning. Right there in verse 35. As you know it to be the shortest verse in all of Scripture. Jesus. He wept. Jesus wept speaks of his humanity. This is probably, in all the Gospels, one of the greatest texts for for putting on display before us the deity and the humanity in perfect harmony in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have his perfect and full deity and his power as he reveals it in, in raising Lazarus from the dead. We have his perfect and full humanity as as man. As he is overcome with this grief and this this grief caused by by this suffering associated with death. And he and he weeps. From this weeping, we see his compassion, do we not? And from his compassion, we see this confirmation of his love as it is expressed time and time again in these verses, his love for Lazarus, his love for Mary, his love for Martha. And out of this love flows compassion and out of this compassion flows this this weeping, this empathy and sympathy 
Now, he loves Lazarus in life. And he loves Lazarus in death. He loves him in health. And he loves him in sickness. He loves him in prosperity. And he loves him in adversity. What a testimony to the unchanging love of Christ. One author has penned one day Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, was walking through the English countryside with a friend. As they strolled along, the evangelist noticed a barn with a weather vane on its roof. At the top of the vane were these words, God is love. Spurgeon remarked to his companion that he thought this was a rather inappropriate place for such a message. Weather vanes are changeable, he said, but God's love is constant. I don't agree with you about those words, Charles, replied his friend. You misunderstood the meaning. That sign is indicating a wonderful truth. Regardless of which way the wind blows, God is love. And wherever we find ourselves in life, in the valley or on the mountaintop, in the days of prosperity or in the days of adversity, in the days of blessing or in the days of tribulation, in those days in which we seem to be sailing with the clouds and those other days which we are barely able to put one foot in front of the other. These things testify nothing to Christ's unchanging love. These are not manifestations of His love up and down and wavering and changing and therefore afflicting or blessing according to His feelings for us. No, you see, His love is unchangeable. Whether Lazarus was dead or alive, Christ loved him. Whether he's ill or healthy, Christ loved him. So it is true of you, believer. Please understand this. Find this greatly comforting and uplifting. That despite what assails me from day to day, Christ's love and compassion and empathy and sympathy to me and toward me is unchanging. Unchanging. It brings us now to the fifth and final scene. Verses 38 to 46, Christ raises Lazarus from the dead. Again, verse 38, he's deeply moved. He comes to the tomb, cave, stone in front. He gives the order, take away the stone. Martha, a little confused. Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He has been dead four days. Oh, I love Christ's response, verse 40. Did I not tell you, did I not just tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Reminiscent of a great event in the Old Testament as Elijah, that prophet of old, finds himself on the mount with that altar before him. The 400 prophets of Baal all around with their altar, cutting themselves, gashing themselves, trying to call down fire from heaven. And then Elijah utters those words, that simple prayer whereby he prays, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know. That you, O Lord, are God. Exactly the same thing is transpiring here. We are within the shadow of the walls of Jerusalem. 
And here the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, brings his public ministry to a conclusion. And here he performs this wonder, this miracle in the very surrounding area of the holy city itself. And he does so why that he might demonstrate to those looking on that his father is God and that he indeed has been sent from the father, that he indeed is the son of God and that he indeed is very God, that I might prove it, that I might demonstrate it. And so in verse 43, when he had said these things, what does he do? Cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. What he was thinking, I can only imagine. What he saw during those four days, don't go crazy here trying to figure it out. We don't know, but I can only imagine. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. And Lazarus writes a book. Then he goes on some big worldwide tour and creates a denomination. We hardly hear another thing about Lazarus. Lazarus is unimportant, friends. It's Christ. It's all about Christ. And what he reveals concerning himself and the And the phrase, just let your mind get around it, Lazarus, come out. Verse 43. I love the words of the psalmist in Psalm 62, 11. God has spoken. Twice have I heard this. Power belongs to God. That's power, folks. That is the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the power of God incarnate. Oh, how I am encouraged by his power. I am encouraged by the fact that Christ raises the dead. Lazarus was dead. I was dead in my sins. Christ loved Lazarus even when he was dead. And Christ loved me even when I was dead in my sins. Christ called Lazarus. Christ called me through the preaching of his word and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Lazarus answered that call and came forth. When I too came forth, my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That is the miracle of regeneration. It reveals the glory of God's power. He has raised sinners from the dead. Reveals the glory of God's grace. He has raised sinners from the dead for his good pleasure. It reveals the glory of God's wisdom. He has raised sinners from the dead for his good pleasure in accordance with his eternal purpose. He has raised us up, says Paul, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Are you encouraged by that? Does that bring comfort to your soul this day? Here's the answer to my sin. The more I see God's glory in Christ, the less I sin. The less I envy others. The less I struggle with pride. The less I covet. The less I lose my temper, cheat, steal, complain, bicker. And the list is endless as I behold the glory of God in Christ. This is the answer to my anxiety. The more I see God's glory in Christ, the less I worry about my circumstances. 
His glory has a way of putting things into perspective. His glory helps me to measure the value of things. His glory helps me to appreciate the value of the spiritual and eternal. His glory loosens my grip on material possessions. His glory loosens my attachment to prosperity. His glory loosens my attachment to the world. This is the answer to my discouragement. The more I see God's glory in Christ, the less I'm discouraged by what's going on in my life and around me. His glory helps me to see that present afflictions are fleeting experiences that pale in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. This is the answer to my fear. The more I see God's glory in Christ, the less I fear. Fear of man disappears. The fear of adversity disappears. The fear of death disappears. Oh, friend, have you drunk your fill at the word of God this morning? I pray that we have, and I pray that it will spill over into worship. Stephen Sharnick writes, Worship is an act of the understanding, applying itself to the knowledge of the excellency of God, recognizing Him as the Supreme Lord and Governor of the world, and beholding the glory of His attributes. In the Redeemer. We have beheld the glory of God's attributes in our Redeemer this morning. We have drank our soul's fill at His Word, and may it pour out and spill over into worship.